0: One, it's obviously meaningful for Casey and Dominic. It's meaningful for them because they're the ones who are getting baptized. As the Bible calls this a sort of sign and seal of God's relationship with them, of the forgiveness of their sins, of their union with Jesus Christ. All those things happen today. And so they leave here different than they came because of this day. It's meaningful for them. But I also want to suggest that this day is meaningful to those of you who are here who have already been baptized. In fact, what this day presents to you is an opportunity, as what church fathers used to say, to improve on your own baptism. Meaning, it's sort of like this, like as a married man, When I now go to a wedding ceremony, at some point in the ceremony, I can't help but remember how I was standing there once and how I was exchanging those vows and giving those promises. Suddenly, I feel the ring on my own finger and twirl it on my hand because I remember again the relationship that I was brought into. I'm renewed again in the promises that I made and that were made to me. Likewise, if you're here and you have been baptized, then here's an opportunity for you to improve on your baptism, meaning that you're not mindlessly watching this day, but that you, by faith, are participating also. And with eyes of faith, you're seeing, and suddenly you can feel the ring on your own finger. How you too were once brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. How you too were once buried and risen again. Your old life gone. Your new life. How you've put on Christ the reality of the forgiveness of your sins. You too can mourn perhaps if you've strayed from the Savior and embraced sins over him. You too might renew yourself and relinquish those things and come back to your baptism come back to what you were promised to and pledged to in Jesus Christ so for you it's a meaningful day and for those of you who are here who have never been baptized I hope and pray that this day perhaps might produce in your own heart a longing a curiosity to wonder what it might be like to come into a relationship with God even through Jesus Christ even for the things that we're talking about today in baptism to be true for you, and that it might surface in your own soul a desire for these things to be true for you. So that's what I'm hopeful for, a meaningful day for all of us. In a moment, we'll hear from Dominic and from Casey. But before we do, I want us to consider for a moment what baptism is, particularly by briefly looking at the baptism of Jesus. So if you've got a Bible in your lap, or there's one in the seat back in front of you, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. This is the first book of the New Testament, the second half of your Bibles. Matthew chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 3 through 17. Matthew 3, verses 13, sorry, through 17. Let me read it for you. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, I want us to consider quickly three things from this passage about Jesus' baptism that might shape how we see our baptism, and even Casey and Dominic's b- baptism today. Here's the first. In baptism, Jesus identifies with us. In baptism, Jesus identifies with us, and subsequently, consequently, resultantly, we identify with him. In baptism, Jesus identifies with us, and we subsequently are joined with him. Just consider this scene we heard for a second. When Jesus shows up to be baptized, did you notice that John the Baptist, who's been baptizing thousands by then, is suddenly shocked at this one man who comes to him? He's taken aback by it. And the reason he's taken aback by it is just three verses earlier, if you scan up in Matthew 3, you'll see that in verse 11, he had just told the crowd, after me is coming someone greater than me. In fact, he's so much greater, I'm not worthy to untie his shoelaces. And John goes on to say, in fact, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me, the one whose shoelaces I can't untie, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See what John's saying? John's saying, look, I can at the best dunk you with water. I can pour some water on you. But there's coming someone after me, greater than me, who is going to plunge you into the Holy Spirit, who's going to pour out his Holy Spirit on you. That's the greater one. I mean, water is great, but the Holy Spirit is greater. I have a baptism with water, but the one coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And just as he says this, comes the greater one. Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And you can hear his shock in verse 14. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? He says to him, I need the baptism you have, rather than you need the baptism I have. Why do you come to me? And then Jesus responds, verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus doing? coming to be baptized. What is the one who has no sins to be forgiven of, coming for the baptism of forgiveness? The one who has no filth in his life to be cleansed of, coming for cleansing. In fact, would you just picture the scene for a moment? Here are perhaps hundreds, perhaps a line of thousands coming to John, and verse 6 says, they all came confessing their sins. So here's this long line of people coming, each one confessing their sins, perhaps privately, perhaps aloud, but each one coming. And by them being on that line, it says something about them. It's sort of like, if you found me standing on a soup kitchen line, by just virtue of being on that line, it implicates something about me. It shows whatever the details of my life are that are different from the man in front of me or the woman behind me, just being on that line implicates we're all in the same boat and I'm in need. I mean, just finding me on that line would cause you to ask questions about my status because that's the way it works. So here... Standing in the baptism line implicates something about you. It says that you, whatever the details of your sins are, different from the man in front of you or the woman behind you, you are a sinner in need of cleansing. You're someone who's accumulated filth in your life, through your life, that needs washing away. And here, standing in that line, is Jesus. Standing in the midst of sinners who need forgiveness. And listen, despite what the old paintings may show, there was no halo or light glowing around his head. There was nothing to distinguish him from the man in front of him or the woman behind him. If you sent a drone up and took an aerial picture, you wouldn't be able to spot Jesus from the crowd. He fit in and blended in just like all the other sinners. There he was, standing in that line with the perverts and the liars, the adulterers and the thieves, The man addicted to pornography, the woman who had cheated on her husband, the the man who had cheated on his taxes, the one who who can't keep their sexuality under control, the one who's too greedy or too gluttonous, the one who's a racist, the one who's self-righteous, he's standing in the lot with all of them, standing just like the rest of them, indistinguishable from that long line of sinners of every stripe and every kind is Jesus. You think of that. Standing there is God. In the midst of all these people who need forgiveness is the God who's supposed to grant forgiveness. Standing on John's baptism line, which makes you then ask, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why would the one who had no sins need to come under the baptism for the forgiveness of sins? The one who, needs, who has no filth come for the cleansing of filth. But you see, that first puzzling question that makes you go, why did Jesus do that, just sets you up to ask the bigger, more puzzling question. Why did Jesus, who had no sin, who had done nothing wrong, need to be executed or crucified or killed? You see, that's when you realize this first question is just setting you up to see this is exactly what Jesus had come to do. In fact, his baptism is just the first step of what Jesus had come to do. He had come to stand with sinners. He had come to stand for sinners. He had come to stand with them and alongside them and to take their place and to be so identified with them that you couldn't distinguish him from the sinner next to you. In fact, the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how much he joined us. He joined our lot so that as he was plunged under the waters, he was plunged, picturing how he would be plunged under the wrath of God and be buried and dead only to be lifted again. That's what Jesus had come to do. And the baptism was the first step signaling what Jesus had come to do. In fact, Jesus knew that this sign was just pointing to what awaited him. In fact, that's why... Jesus, many years after the Jordan River, long after he had been baptized, three years almost later, Jesus would say this. You can hear this verse from Luke 12, verse 50. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Did you hear that? You want to go, wait a minute, Jesus, what do you mean you have a baptism to be baptized with? You were baptized. We saw you when John did that. And yet years later, far away from the Jordan River, he could say, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Why? Because Jesus knew there was a real being buried under the wrath of God. There was a real drowning for the sins of all the people on that line, you and me included. There was a real being put down and buried and lifted up that awaited him. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You see, the forgiveness that John's baptism, that these waters pointed to, would be secured because Jesus would undergo the baptism of the cross. And he stood on that line because it was the first step of him joining us, throwing himself in with our lot. So that, consequently, subsequently, resultantly, when we are baptized, we are joined with him. Today, for Dominic and for Casey, and for all of you who have been baptized, and all who will be baptized, as you participate in baptism and respond to it in faith, you are truly joined with Christ. God is present here and unites you so that you are plunged into the death of Jesus and buried with Jesus and lifted up to newness of life with Jesus. And this sign is given to you as a seal of that reality that this is what God is doing to you and through you and for you by faith today. For all who have been baptized and will be baptized and who participate in this by faith, you have truly been united with Christ. God is here, present. You have truly been united, joined with Him. So that, hear this, even in the days to come, you can look back on this reality and point to it and say, There it is. Nothing can ever take that away. Let me just read you this quote I heard from an Anglican minister this week that was so sweet to my own soul. An Anglican minister named Michael Green, he says, In moments, When our faith sinks into the morasses of doubt, we can take heart. God has acted decisively for us in Christ. We have been baptized into him, and we belong, however rotten we may feel at any given moment. Amen to that. That means in the days to come, when doubt creeps in and the evil one whispers to your lie that you're a fraud, you point back and say, there it is. I was put under the waters, and as surely as those waters covered over me, so did Jesus' blood, washing away all my sins. And there it is. I was lifted out of those waters, and as surely as I was raised, so was I raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ. Nothing and no one can ever take away this sign and this seal from you who respond and believe. This is a glorious, beautiful, good thing. And in baptism, we remember that we have been joined with Christ and he with us. Second, in baptism, God spoke his love over his son. That's what you also see in this passage. In baptism, God spoke his love over his son and consequently, subsequently, resultantly over us as well in our baptism. Look at the scene Do you remember the verse in verse 17? Heaven breaks out in a loud shout, and heaven says, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father breaks out from heaven in voice, a loud shout, declaring to all who were there who Jesus was. If you go back and you look in Psalm 2, God declares of his son. In Isaiah 42, he declares of his servant with whom he is well pleased. And it's almost like the father smashes together these two verses and says, this is my son, my servant, with whom I am well pleased. He is declaring for all to hear there who Jesus is. This is my son, and in him I am so pleased. Would you hear this? Casey and Dominic, as you are baptized today... Here is God through this sign and seal declaring over you, you are my beloved child. With you, I am so pleased. Would you consider that? It's, it's like this is an adoption ceremony and you are becoming a child of God and a member of God's family. And you can look back always and say, there it is. I I was adopted, brought into the family of God. There is my baptism. And for all who have been baptized and who will be baptized, who respond to this by faith, would you hear this sign, shouts, of our adoption through the gospel? In fact, the good news that the only begotten son was pushed out of the family so that those who were out of the family might be adopted in. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us, that God looked at his son with whom he was well-pleased and on the cross turned his face away so that we, with whom he had no pleasure, might become the children with whom he is well-pleased. This is what you hear at baptism. Let me say it this way. When our son was just a boy, Micah was just a little kid, maybe two, three years old, He had this question that he'd ask us all the time. No one ever taught him to ask it. But he'd come to us all the time and go, Dada, are you happy at me? Right? Even the grammar of it isn't right. The sentence isn't composed right. But something in his little soul needed to bubble up. He'd come, especially when he did something wrong. Maybe the insecurity would come up and creep up at that moment. And he'd come and say, Mama, are you happy at me? Now, we're Christian parents who have received the grace of God. And so what's our answer all the time? Micah, of course we are happy at you. No matter what he had done, whether good or bad, Micah, we will never not be happy at you. Dada is so happy at you. You know what I was saying? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And you know what God is saying through this sign to all who have been baptized, to our brother and sister? I am so happy at you. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. And I want you to hear, if there's a question that bubbles up in our hearts, isn't it this one? I want to say, no matter how adult you become, how immature that little boy was at two or three to ask such a poorly grammared sentence, isn't that the question your soul looks to the heavens and asks? After a day where you haven't performed all that well, where your devotion hasn't been white hot, where your streak with the Lord has faltered and failed, doesn't your soul look to the heavens and wonder, Father, are you happy at me, even still, even today? I can tell you, perhaps as a Christian, more than the other questions that plague my own soul, I don't stay up at night wondering were the miracles true, I don't have a hard time believing in the resurrection, but you know deep down the question that still nags is, is the father still pleased with me? Is he still happy at me? Like that first hour when I believed and all these years and all these sins later, is he still happy at me? No matter how old we get, brothers and sisters, that's the question of our souls. You miss three quiet times and your soul is wondering, is he happy at me? And so here at this baptism is a sign and a seal by which God is shouting to you, you are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. N.T. Wright, an author, said it this way. You can hear it. He said the whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day, You are my wonderful son. You make me very glad. Casey and Dominic, would you hear that? And for all who have been baptized and will be by faith, this is the promise of God to you, that through the gospel, Jesus has ensured that the Father would look at you as his own son. Third and finally, in baptism, Jesus was launched into ministry. The other thing I want you to see in this passage as we consider what this day means for our brother and sister and for all of us is that at the baptism, Jesus was launched into ministry and consequently, subsequently, resultantly, so are we. Do You notice that the baptism is essentially the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. In fact, if you're in Matthew, if you look down in chapter 4 over verse 12, you'll see a heading that says, Jesus begins his ministry. And if you look down at verse 17, it'll say, And then Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, the baptism launches Jesus into public ministry. Till now, he had done what he had done, but from this moment on, he would be doing ministry. So much so that when the book of Acts needs to find a replacement for Judas, they say, We need someone who is with Jesus from his baptism all the way to his resurrection. Why? Because those are the markers. This is when he began. His baptism launched him into public ministry. From this moment on, he would be a witness for God and declare the truths of the kingdom of God. This is how it works. When the apostles in Acts 2 were baptized with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and Pentecost happened, one second after they received the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak the works of Jesus. So it was for Jesus, and here, brother and sister, so it is for us today. In fact, other Christians have called baptism the ordination of Christians. It's your ordination into ministry. It's the ordination for laymen. Look, all of us are not pastors, but all of us are a kingdom of priests, the Bible says, or ministers. And we've all been, through our baptism, ordained for Christian ministry. Here's what that means, Casey and Dominic. Your faith, Jesus' baptism, wasn't this moment where he received the Holy Spirit, was told that he was a son, so that he can now retreat and quietly enjoy this personal relationship with God. So he could retreat and say, isn't it beautiful that the Spirit's on me and that I'm a son? From that moment on, he was launched into public ministry. And so likewise, you are ordained this day for Christian witness and ministry. That you belong to Jesus. That's what's being publicly proclaimed in this baptism. That you belong body and soul and heart and mind to Jesus Christ. From now until he returns or death comes. Whatever it may be, you belong to him. And that which you bear witness to in your baptism, you from this day forward must be a witness to, to your lips and through your lives. And I want you to hear, if you're here and you were baptized, would you feel the ring on your finger? Would you remember that you too were ordained for ministry, that you too have been marked out by God, filled with his Holy Spirit, assured that you're a child, not so that you can enjoy a private relationship, but that you might be a witness for Jesus Christ. And here's an opportunity for you to improve on your baptism, to say that which I said loudly and publicly through my baptism, I now will through my lips and my lives as a witness for Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating today. When we see our brother and sister get baptized, would you be thinking union with Jesus? Him identifying with us, us identifying with him. Would you be thinking adoption? We are the children of God through this sign and seal as testifying to us. And would you be thinking we've been called to now be co-laborers, and bear witness for Jesus Christ that these things are in fact true. We're going to now invite our brother and sister to begin that life of bearing witness for Christ, even today, so that they might share and testify to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in their life. So I'm going to invite Dominic to come. He'll share, and then Casey after.
1: Hello. Good morning, church. Uh, My name is Dominic and much like many Christians, I had the privilege of growing up in a very Christ-centric home. Growing up, my family would attend church every Sunday and we would have daily family prayers at our home. It was a great blessing to be be growing up in a Christ-centric home, learning about Christ at a very young age. But for some reason, being a Christian seemed very routinish to me at that time. You go to church, you pray daily, you do good things and you will earn your way to heaven. And that's all what Christianity meant to me growing up. Fast forward a few years when it was time to leave home and go to college full time, I found myself in the midst of scholars in the science and engineering community, most of whom believed and tried everything to do to disprove the validity of Christianity and religion in general. Even my heroes in college, my professors, my TAs, and most of my friends, all of them always seeked to quantify, theorize, and justify the absence of God. They would often tell me that God was nothing less than a man-made construct to set good order and positive hopes in society. And soon with time, I too followed their justification and started living a godless life, a life as an atheist, believing God did not exist and we were all created by accident, and we were all byproducts of millions and millions of years of evolution. And all that mattered in life was my existence and my self-preservation and what were the best ways to serve my existence to make my short time on Earth a glorious one. Having this belief, I lived majority of my life Majority of uh, my life, only seeking to do things that served me best. It was a very self-centric life. I did enjoy all the pleasures life could provide. I remember enjoying all the goodness and the pleasures the world could provide me. And even after tasting all of that goodness, the joy felt always momentary and temporary. Looking back now, I could say that there was a void in me that no amount of earthly happiness could fulfill. It was always the passing of one joyous moment leading to the search for the next joyous moment. Fast forward a few years of living a self-centered atheistic life, I found myself hitting rock bottom when I lost my first job out of college from a major company downsizing. It was quite tragic and it was one of the darkest times of my life where I lost my first most important job I had and I saw a possibility of losing my home and everything else I worked so hard for. It was very tragic. At that point, I hit rock bottom, and in the middle of all that darkness and hopelessness, there was one thing that came to my mind at that moment. It was from the scriptures I learned from growing up back home. I vividly remembered that Jesus cared about me and Jesus loved me, and my circumstances were not an accident. With that thought in mind, I made my first honest prayer in several years. I remember asking Christ to save me from my darkest days and I would seek him out for the rest of my life. Fast forward a few days after making that honest prayer, Christ worked miracles around me and in me and pulled me out of that dark place. And I was amazed, about, amazed with the sequence of events that took place that pulled me out of one of the darkest days of my life and into a place of hope and peace. I witnessed a miracle, and it was quite the experience, and I was truly amazed. I knew it was an act of God that pulled me out from where I was, and there on out, I started seeking Christ one day at a time, which then, a few years later, led me here at Seven Mile Road, where I grew even deeper in my faith and relationship to Christ. Looking back, it was all an astonishing miracle, and I'm thankful to Christ to save an atheist like me and bring me back home. My own story reminds me of the story of the prodigal son in certain ways. Looking back, the transformation I went through was not an overnight transformation, but instead it was a step-by-step walk from the darkness of the secular world into the light of salvation. From here on out, I live my life to glorify Christ and seek out his kingdom. And with this baptism, I proclaim, the old secular me is dead, and the new me is born in Christ. I'm Dominic, and thank you for listening to my testimony.
2: Good morning. So last year, I realized I have a preoccupation with new chapters and fresh starts. Uh, I have relished in the prospect of potential for most of my life. New college, new job, even new friends all present options and a chance to start over, a chance to try and be a different person and a better person. I don't know what that says about me and my life that I'm always seeking do-overs. Even now, a few years from 30, I still feel like my book has been stuck in the first few chapters like I'm always waiting for life to finally begin. I have spent most of that time feeling adrift. When you're constantly looking for that moment when everything changes, or looking for the next chance to do better, it can become a lens through which you see the world that makes everything more strained and deeply warped. All you start to see is the failings. Everything becomes about where you went wrong, how you screwed up, what paths you didn't take, and what words you didn't say. Fictitious new beginnings are cruel taskmasters that leave you unsatiated and always feeling like you were cut from a lesser cloth. Some people don't need to be reconciled to this fact, but God took his time in revealing to me the utter despair cycles of self-reliance creates. He did so by allowing me to be lost in a storm of complete chaos so that I would surrender control and be built back up with a better understanding of his divine sovereignty and his promises. In the past two years, I've been forced out of a dream job, had to break an engagement, and then watch the lives of the people I loved around me get thrown into undeserved turmoil, which has forever shaped my relationships with them, some for the better and some for far worse. Through these events, God led me here. Yet this isn't my first church. The knowledge of God and Jesus has always been a presence in my life. I started off at the church at a young age, and was made aware of my sinfulness and of God's love early on. I learned he loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die and bear the burden of my sin so that I may live and be forgiven and be a part of his family. So following a confession of my sins, I became saved, giving my life to Christ. But before high school, some distorted theology challenged my family's place in the church, and so I was instructed to stop going. The pivotal time when I would have begun to really mature in faith and delve into deeper theological themes never came, and instead was replaced with mixed messages about going out into the world and the hazards of fellowship with unenlightened Christians. The lack of ritual and community gave rise to apathy, complacency, and an eventual prodigal lifestyle, and years went by without an open Bible, a praise song, or a desire for Christian community. I forgot the meaning of God's love and of Jesus' sacrifice and the promises that came with it. The contention surrounding church was deeply ingrained in me, and I made no effort to fight it. Instead, I attempted to take the reins of my own life, and to no one's surprise except my own, that didn't turn out very well. My God became the excitement of new beginnings, the lure of great potential, and those ever-elusive goalposts that always keep moving. And that God failed, because last year I was alone. My future and the people whom I thought would be in it were gone and a profound sense of abandonment, loss, and uncertainty washed over me like towering waves, overwhelming and crippling, with no time to breathe before the next one hit. It was just a string of disappointments and betrayals, each pulling me further under, all eventually leading to a quiet staring inside that said, what are you doing? It's time to go home. And so God became my breath in the crushing water. I was carried away, and suddenly the reins were not my own. Before I knew it, I was here. He led me to this church, He brought new friends into my story. He threw open the door for family that grabbed me with outstretched arms, some of whom I had barely even spoken to before. He filled me with a sense of urgency, a Holy Spirit-driven desire to relearn scripture and to break old habits, a still ongoing process. He reminded me how deep his love runs and how he sent his son so that I may not be lost to my sin but saved through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. He conquered death so that I may live and live eternally with him a gift of which I am not worthy. He took my unworthiness and made it clean and corrected the lens I looked through so that it was illuminated with his glory and so that I could not only see the people around me differently, but myself as well. He brought me through a resurgence I didn't know I needed. And that is the wondrous work of God, allowing me to fail and fall astray, but then offering me the grace and direction to come back home. My shortcomings and sins, the years spent apart, we're all forgiven through Christ's death on the cross. I have been made perfect through his blood, and I am no longer fated to a permanent separation from God. Most of my life I was just drifting, my self-reliance always failing me. But I've had new life breathed into me when I didn't ask for it, when I didn't want it, and when I didn't deserve it. I was reminded of my identity, a child of God saved from sin for myself, through Jesus, who never fails. His grace has altered the landscape of my life, given me the ultimate new beginning, and has brought me through and will bring me through any and all storms. And he is a much better God than the goalposts. Thanks.
3: Good morning, church. Uh, My name is Laji Matthew. Uh, I'm here with my wife. Grace, we've been here at this church for about four years now. this is the hardest part for me right now. I'm not a good public speaker. So um, ever since I can remember going back to when I was in India, um, I always went to church. Um, not because I wanted to, but because I was forced to by my parents. Um, looking back at it, a blessing in disguise. A few years went by, I wanted to go to church because a lot of my good friends that I, that I have now, even to this day, um, was there. I wanted to hang out with them more. Um, my parents always had family prayer. Every night, they tried to instill in me a value of prayer and Bible study and reading the Bible. Um, when I was younger, it didn't really matter to me. I just wanted to do my own thing. I, during, during family prayer, I was physically there, but I, I was thinking about, OK, what should I do next? Should I, I wanted to play, play video games or whatever it may be. Um, I was putting on this happy face throughout that ages. Um, because my parents put a lot of uh, somewhat pressure on me because he, when we were here, we, were, we didn't really have a lot of family. It was just my parents and my younger sister. They always told me to be a good boy, be a good role model to my sister. Um, it was hard growing up because I felt like the, this pressure was putting me back, um, I what, what, a, what a way to show being a good boy than to say that I went to church, I listened to good Christian music, I attended a Christian concert. Um, I was satisfied with my life. I didn't realize that I was filling my life uh, with Christian things uh, when I needed a God in my life to fill that hole. I was hoping all the good things that I've done or that I was trying to do would outweigh all the bad things in my life. Over the years... Um, From attending all these things, God continued to tug at my heart, trying to tell me that he cares for me uh, through the people that uh, that I came across or uh, things that I've seen. Now, in my late 20s, in my early teens, um, I grew fond of a few guys in my church. Um, It was a time when I could decide whether I should continue to go to church or just let it be. Um, It started as uh, a basketball uh, team up just to, uh, you know, weekly... Uh, to come together just to play ball, uh, to eventually um, hanging out at Joe and Tracy's house, to uh, being past being mentored by Pastor Benu. Um, I didn't really have a lot of, as I mentioned, I didn't have a lot of uh, older guys in my life in uh, in terms of family, so I looked up to these guys as role models. Um, I wanted to go to church at this time because I wanted to know what was so. Um, why were they so interested in learning or even teaching? Um, Learning to trust God and put my faith in him was the hardest part for me. It was hearing the gospel message broken down in a way that I was able to understand that I realized of my own sinful nature, that uh, I tend to rely on my strength, my will, my ability to get get me through. And I do that still to this day, but to lean on God, uh, more, um, I was able to do that. Um, I, heard a mil- I heard a million times that it's not by my own works uh, that I'm saved, but it's by the blood of Christ that I am redeemed. Um, I still struggle uh, now uh, to understand what his plans are for me, but um, I'm able to get through it because I lean on God. Uh, there are still days when I worry um, Earlier on, when I would either get a job out of school, would I be married, um, have a, have family, uh, and now looking back at it, having a son of my own, uh, I question, do I trust God? Do I, am I able to lean on him to lead them in a way that I wasn't, that I can't do it on my own? Um, I know that there will be dark, dark days in my life, but I know that the, my father in heaven will be able to, will be there and guiding me, uh, and which brings me peace. Thank
4: you. Morning, church. Um, I, grew up with, I grew up with two loving Christian parents. We had family prayers and was taught the Bible. I grew, up, I grew up knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, and one day he will come again for his people. Only if we follow him, we can go to heaven. I thank my parents for teaching me these, those truths. Even though I was aware of this, I didn't fully understand what this meant. Whenever I go somewhere or do something, I was always reminded, God is watching you. I felt I had to be a good person and do the right thing because God was watching me. I started living life by checking off a checklist. If I fulfilled this checklist, then God would love me and I can go to heaven. Life hit me hard when I was in middle school. I was bullied for a year and it was one of the worst, worst years of my life. I wondered why this was happening to me. What did I do to deserve this? I'm a good person. During this time is when I started reading the Bible. I needed to read God's word to get me through the day. God truly was with me that year. I wasn't hurt physically and was able to switch out of the class. This experience taught me to treat everyone equally, pe- equally pe- treat people equally regardless of who they were. I was so humbled and I thank God for that season in my life. As I grew older, I knew I could go to God when I was in need. My life changed during my junior year of college. I felt that I couldn't keep up with anything around me. I had friends who were Christian and some who were not. My Christian friends made me feel I wasn't Christian enough and I had to do more. I was feeling lonely and didn't have anyone to turn to. At the same time, I didn't think I was smart enough to get through college or find a job. I was so confused in where I was headed, it led me to be so angry with who I was. I thought by being Christian, life should be easy, and if I needed something, I should just pray about it. I was so angry with God because my life was not going the way I planned. I didn't know where to turn, so I called my mom who, to pray for me. She prayed for me and gave me words of encouragement. She said, failure is a stepping stone to success. I don't think this quote has any Christian basis, but it helped me open my mind to understand what was wrong with me. I was failing and I was failing because I thought I could do everything myself. I thought I was a good Christian and or a good person because I was following the rules of Christianity, yet I constantly failed. My motives to fill this checklist was not for me, but, but was not for God, but for me. I also needed to let go of the control I had around every aspect of my life. I asked myself, what is my definition of being a good person? Am I using the people around me or am I comparing myself to God? My whole life I was living in sin, I didn't realize it. I got down on my knees and I told God, I surrender my life to you. I don't know what my future is, but you do. Open my eyes to see and hear you. This is the day I became a believer. My view of life changed drastically. This world taught me I had to be better than the person next to me, I needed to look a certain way, and most of the time I'm not worth anything. God opened my eyes to see that I am loved and I am perfect because of the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Our loving God allowed his son to die for me so that I would not have to pay for the pen- penalty of my sins. This love is so overwhelming that I felt freed from this bondage to sin. As my love for God for Christ grew, I wanted to learn more about the Bible. I joined Bible studies at school and church. I started listening to sermons by different pastors and began looking into different churches. God brought people into my life who loved Jesus and helped me in my walk. I finally realized what my parents meant by following God's way. I learned I was not meant for this world. I am not meant to be, I am meant to be, I am meant to be in heaven with with my father. When God created this world, he created me in his image. Everything he created was good. I began to find worth in Jesus Christ. This checklist of all the good things I needed to do was not weighing over me. Rather, I wanted to follow God's law because I realized how much I loved him. Since my college years, God has revealed himself to me in many ways. I have been going through different seasons where the devil brings me down. He puts thoughts in my head that God is not for me and that God wants me to suffer. I sometimes fall prey to these words, but I look back on my life and see the miraculous things God has done in my life and others. I remind myself, even the devil himself is afraid of God, and if God is on my side, what should I be fearful of? This took a while for me to understand. Now that this truth has been revealed to me, I do not give power to the devil. I give all glory to God. I praise and thank God for adopting me as his child, Looking back on my life, all the ups and downs was God showing me that he has a plan for me, and it is good. I still struggle with understanding God's plan, but I know it's not to harm me, but to strengthen. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. All fear is gone because I know he holds the future, and life is worth living because he lives. Thank you.